Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first free episode of Discourse. Now, this is something that we have previously had password protected for our Patreon subscribers, but we thought that the content was just so important because we are talking about religion as it appears in the world around us, keeping our finger on the pulse. And we thought that was just so important that everybody should be listening to it. So, Welcome to the first episode of Discourse, and I am joined today by Sydney and Sierra, and we are across three continents, which is a feat in and of itself, um, but I'm going to throw it to Sydney to introduce himself. Thank you, Brian. It's finally a pleasure to be in Discourse. It's like a little bit strange to be on the other side of the mic, not interviewing, but being just talking, so it's a quite nice exercise. Uh, I am like, uh, I'm an anthropologist. I studied, I'm from Peru. I studied anthropology in National University of San Marcos. And I have an MA in sociology, social anthropology for Central, Central European University in Budapest, Hungary. So I'm interested in religion and that's pretty much it. Thanks so much for that. And Sierra, tell us about yourself. Um, I am a PhD student at the University of North Carolina um, in Chapel Hill currently. Um, my master's thesis looked at um, scholarly discourses on the Virgin of Guadalupe, but now I'm working on a more transatlantic um, project looking at concepts of the body and how that relates to discourses on religion. So it's great wow. to be back on the podcast. <laughs> We've got two very different um, topics of interest here. Um, but, Sydney, I wanted to talk about something that you raised when we were preparing for this episode, something that's happened really in only the last 24 hours, and that is um, the Congress elections in Peru. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, exactly. Uh, well, it's like a, quite a convoluted history these past uh, four years, to be precise because uh, the Congress that was elected last time in Peru was supposed to run from 2016 to 2021. And in 2021, we are uh, 200, we celebrate 200 years of independence of Republican history. But uh, the, because of issues with the executive and the Congress powers, uh, there was like a, several cases of corruption that just like, well, how can I say, divulged by the media and also like uh, as part of political play, power plays, that the, the Congress was censured by the executive power. So there were several processes, instances of this, and it has been carried out for almost two years, this, these issues, because uh, we, have, well, we have 130 seats in the whole Congress, and last time we had 70, oh, yeah, almost a little bit more than 70 seats were taken by the far right mm. uh, party, so majority. So it was like uh, they were always somehow bringing an obstacle to that sense. And uh, the executive decided to dissolve the Congress and call for up, uh, how do you say, um, upfront election, elections for Congress, mm -hmm. and which is today is happening actually as we speak. Uh, probably is like uh, already in finishing hours, and but this congress will only last for one year and a half because it's for the whole period. It's going to cover the remaining period, and there is a lot of 
like disappointment from the general population. I mean, this Congress is one of the most, uh, how can I say, doesn't have any prestige for the, any, like the citizens really don't have any kind of regard for it. It has a lot of, uh, a lot of, of, lost a lot of value in the general public because there is a lot of corruption attached to it. And, uh, well, pretty much we have mandatory vote in Peru. So pretty much people are going to vote because they want to avoid the, the, uh, the fine. Right. I, I read somewhere that a lot of citizens were actually suggesting that they were going to put in a blank vote, despite the fact that it, you know, it's mandatory voting, but they were just going to put in a blank ballot. Yes, yes, indeed. That's like a, a very common Peruvian practice, I would say, <laughs> uh, which many people indulge myself also when I was younger, of course. But uh, in this case, if you like sign a blank ballot or just like deface the, the ballot, it's going to automatically sum up to the rest of the parties. So it's really a, a new, no use exercise. And there has been some campaign from the National Jury of Elections to try to and try to address this issue, encourage the people to actually emit a valid vote. But uh, we will see uh, after these these results. I mean, it's like a little bit experiment that is going on right now. And um, how is the concept of religion playing into all of this? Is it something that is front and centre or something that's more on the sidelines? Well, you would say that uh, in a sense it's at the front but also not that much. So it's kind of a, yeah, like a, a mix Makes mm-hmm. sense because mainly how religion is put in the front of uh, any kind of public debate in politics in Peru for the last, I would say, 10 years, even more, but now is more prominent, is when these issues regarding the gender ideology comes into play. The mm-hmm. uh, so-called gender ideology, I mean, it's not, not the scientifically speaking as the correct term to say it, but that's how in, in everyday life people talk about it. So, and there is this, like, uh, people pretty much, like, the, all the people that run for Congress or for presidency, even the last elections, we also had this uh, kind of discourse that uh, it's like immediately, if you are in favor or uh, a negative for pro-woman rights or pro-abortion in case of, uh, in case of rape or pro, like, uh, integral sexual education in high schools, then it's already like uh, it already leans you towards a specific kind of place in the political spectrum. And many, unfortunately, many people that are like uh, Christians or evangelical, Pentecostal particularly, are supporting this in the grassroots level. And the Catholic Church, the conservatives are supporting it from the like high politics, the, like with already people have been established for some time. So that's how you see it uh, more prevalent. And uh, I could ha- I could identify two in- two particular streams of Christianity uh, that was happening now. Well, as I said, the Pentecostals, that uh, also the Catholics, but also there is like this new religious movement. Well, that is not that new anymore uh, because it was founded in 1968, but it's Peruvian. So. And it's one of the like uh, first and few Peruvian millenarist movements, a messianic as well, 
that came from the rural parts of the country towards the city. So it's like a very grassroots organization. The leader was Ezequiel Atacuzzi Gamunal. He already died in 2000, but the party, I mean, the religious group exists since late uh, the 70s. And the like, uh, political branch exists since the late 80s as well. So they are running as well, and they are very easily identifiable because they were investments according to what uh, the leader said is like uh, according to mosaic law with large tunics, veils and stuff like that. So they are very easily identifiable. But they are like more, uh, the social composition of that group is more of the like uh, lower socioeconomic status people, poor people coming from rural backgrounds. So it's like quite diverse and the discourse on both instances are trying to be secularized, but uh, I mean, in the evangelical and Pentecostal case, I'm using these terms of, of like overlapping. Mm-hmm. It's quite uh, difficult to do. For instance, one of the candidates for Congress, when it was the final uh, time for interventions on a, on a public debate, he kneeled and with Bible in hand, he said, I thank God for being here. And I wish that uh, God already gave blessings to Peru because of the food, the resources, whatever. But uh, now we have to, you know, mm-hmm. make, make sure that these these blessings stay with us. So we have to go for blah, 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 the party that is going to represent them and stuff. So I could identify those instances that yeah. really comes to play. Um, this is perhaps a silly question. When um, a congressman or congressperson is sworn into Congress in Peru, do they do that on a religious text? In Australia, a member of parliament gets to choose the religious text they're sworn in upon, whether that's the Bible or the Quran or something else. Do Does that happen in Peru as well? Yes, you have the chance to choose for the Bible or the Constitution. either, okay. But also... But also in the Constitution, I mean, in the like, when you, it's the opening text, it's also stated uh, uh, like there is a paragraph dedicated to God and there's like a declaration that Peru is a Catholic nation and so on and so on. Uh, yeah, so it's like, it, it's in constitutionally, it's a secular country, but in practice, we, there is a lot of discussion about that. And also sociologists and lawyers have been publishing about that, that, uh, that ambiguity. And um, I know that there's still a couple of hours to go. How do you see this unfolding yourself? Well, that's a little bit uh, difficult for me to say because I have, haven't been in Peru for the last two plus years. I'm based in Budapest uh, since uh, late 2017. But uh, I follow the news all the time. I talk with my friends that are also working for some of them. I work for the state. Uh, some of them are just like, you know, sharing news all the time. And uh, it seems to me that the degree of disillusionment from the last Congress, with which the majority was far right or were supporting this kind of variety, uh, cover-ups for corruption cases and stuff, it's so great in the general population that people are just like switching over to more centrist or even lefty, leftist uh, candidates. Not that much because there is a stigma attached to left, to the left, and uh, 
because we had in the 80s terrorist movement, which was like a radical left movement, like Leninist, Maoist, Marxist mm -hmm. movement, shining path. So there is always this buzzword when people from the left or candidates run from the, for Congress or for any position in the public sphere. But it's like uh, it's like a great turnover so far. So I think the tendency will change for these elections. So people will favor central centrist position, like right liberal probably, and also lefty. So, but it's still it's up for grabs. So we need to quantify count the blank ballots and who that is going that going to favor. And in Peru, you never know. Really, it's like. Uh, it's like a bingo game sometimes. And, of course, we could talk about where you are, Sierra, in terms of politics. I think from the Australian news it's clear that the presidential sort of race has begun. I've heard lots of things about Bernie Sanders and all sorts of things coming out. But we're not going to talk about that today. Rather, <laughs> we're going to talk about um, a book that has received a lot of traction um, in the States at the moment um, called American Dirt. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, this book, I guess I became aware of it on Twitter mostly at first. And uh, the article that I distributed to you two, um, I think, was a more mild response compared to some of the other things that um, are floating around. But basically, to just give a brief um, account of what's going on, this book, um, this woman wrote and got like a seven-figure deal for writing the book um, in US. I couldn't believe that when I wrote that, a seven-figure deal. That's, yeah. Um, that's and it's hard to tease out, you know, what where... Um, we should be looking at the author versus her agent versus the industry at large. But basically, the book was um, promoted as an immigrant experience, even citing that the author's husband was an undocumented immigrant, later to find out he's from Ireland when the book is trying to account, um, recount a Latin American migrant experience. And so I would say, understandably, a lot of um, Latinx writers have spoken up um, questioning what kind of gatekeeping goes on in publishing um, industries where this is the kind of um, account of an immigrant that is um, consumed at a high level um, by audiences in the United States and how um, their portrayals of their own experiences don't receive the same positive attention. So for example, um, Oprah's book club is reading this and Oprah posted a few things, you know, really excited about this book. But uh, I think there's a lot of criticism of how um, that experience is being portrayed towards a particular audience rather than as an experience in itself. Like it's, it's, um, I think it reveals a lot about how the discourse on immigration in the United States is really the parameters for that discourse are set by a select few um, that are similarly reflected in the numbers of the publishing industry that were given in this article, which I know you can't, listeners to this can't see, but um, they were pretty much dominantly white um, yeah, it was something like they were really high figures, over 75 and 80% um, Caucasian editors, authors, and in that sense, mm. you know, 
we're seeing a, a complete homogenization of a particular of, of publishing really in general. Um, I was wondering if both of you, when I read those kind of comments about the homogenization of the publishing industry, I was wondering if you felt that that was something that carried across to religious studies publishing or if you felt like we had a broader diversity. Um, Sydney, maybe if we start with you, do you think we have a diversity in our publishing in the Religious Studies Academy? Oh, that's uh, like a whole subject. Myself coming from a Latin American country, and coming from, I studied in a state university, so I, I, I think I, I know, I'm familiarized a little bit with that. Yes, indeed, uh, I mean, not only the, I would say, ethnic component is there, definitely, but also uh, it overlaps with socioeconomic status, definitely, and also with gender. So mm. even in the periphery, so to speak, uh, so as Peru is in, in the academia as well. I mean, the most prominent publications come for religious studies that I'm familiarized at least come from Brazil, Argentina, or Chile, because they also have the, like, the connections that are more with Europe. I mean, historically, even they have had uh, more immigration coming from Europe because of different, uh, different social issues or, or wars and stuff to South America and also back and forth. Uh, and also, they, these are located in the private universities, and the private universities are run by people that are of certain specific uh, socioeconomic status, which is middle class, upper middle class, and often this overlaps with also ethnicity or race. And uh, yes, you can see that, uh, uh, like, we, we have a very jokingly way to say this. That, uh, for example, if you have a, la a like a last name that sounds like an avenue. So the more European or the more uh, foreign it sounds, the more fancy it is. And our avenues are named after these kind of fancy last names, you know, coming from Europe or whatever. So the more likely is that you get a position or like, uh, not only in religious studies academia, but in, any, in anything. And I yeah. think it translates over more to other fields, yeah, but it's more likely, definitely. And Sierra, what are your thoughts on that sort of idea of, of you know, diversity in our own area? Um, I mean, I would say I'm so early career that I don't have quite um, a decent sample size to look mm. to, but I have noticed, I mean, the sources that I use that come from religious studies are usually in English um, and were printed in the United States or um, in Europe. And when I take a more interdisciplinary approach, um, I get a lot more sources in Spanish. Like if I, if I look to... Um, journals in history, then there's more variety. Um, that's like one super microcosm thing that I've observed, but I don't think I have enough experience to speak about diversity in publishing and religious studies at large. Um, I think there's a lot more self-reflexivity than this author <laughs> demonstrated, uh, but I'm not sure about how a number breakdown might look. Yeah, perhaps we're more critical as a discipline. Um, we are quite a small discipline as well. So um, I think that, you know, our interconnectedness sometimes in terms of being, um, as you say, self-reflexive is perhaps sometimes a, a really good thing. But as you say, it's depending on what sort of area you're looking at, you can see dominant trends um, for, you know, for example, if you're looking into Gnosticism, you're going to see a particular trend. Um 
In terms of your your book, let's just go back to American Dirt. Um, is there any sort of direct correlation with religion in that particular text? Um, I think really just this idea that whoever is being portrayed as the majority of an audience will be the audience that is catered to, whether or not they are the literal majority of that space, if that makes sense. So um, in the United States, I think politicians imagine that the religious majority is kind of a mainline Protestant. Um, And so some politicians play into that to help their standings. Um, I think something similar happened with the entertainment industry um, that perhaps they're not uh, consciously playing to a particular audience in terms of something we could call religion. I think if we looked closely, there would be um, some definite trends in whose uh, so-called religious sentiments are being um, afforded legitimacy in what types of texts are being produced by the entertainment industry. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. um, like whose unstated interests are governing what gets published and consumed by mm. um, an American audience. So I think literature like American Dirt um, for Oprah Winfrey to say that it woke her up when it's not mm-hmm. that provocative of an example of a migrant narrative or it's a very sort of sanitized version. Um, I think that tells us a lot about the expectations for how we can talk about migrant experiences um, in the United States and and what counts as uh, too detailed or too um, much of an account and what count, what is able to pass as a authoritative account, even when it is uh, fictional or written by someone who you know, claims they are giving a face to the a faceless mass. Um, so. Yes, the author was quite um, quite uh, overt about that sense that she wanted to sort of de-homogenize the migrant experience, and mm-hmm. which is something that the book actually does not do at all. It actually goes down this sort of very one-track kind of yeah. narrative, and she even herself said. Um, that she had wished that the book had been written by somebody a little browner and this idea that (laughs) it wasn't brown enough but then she wanted to bring a face to this mass. It was, I mean, the whole... um, Just very ironic because there's there's so many amazing writers of colour that are out there um, but instead of, you know, supporting them or promoting what they were already writing, she still took a seven-figure... Um, deal <laughs> to write her yeah. version yeah. of this experience and it'll be interesting to see whether down the track due to criticism what she does with that with those funds yeah i think also, whether she chooses to redirect also, them sorry? it's also this sorry it's also this sensationalization of the kind of or romanticization of narco culture you know Right. I mean, uh, I haven't. I never been into these these things, but I know that because it's all, all over bombarded in the media, telenovelas that deal with this uh, the relationship of uh, the rise of the narcos with a prominent drug dealer, and uh, novels that are written about those things. I mean, in Mexico it was big production, the Red Queen of the South, the Reina del Sur, and there was another. I think Colombian, Sindita no hay paraíso. 
So, and there was massively consumed also in, in Peru, as if I also remember, people were pirating the book, you know, selling it in, in, this, in the street markets and stuff. And now with the series Narcos, which pretty much is like, uh, have become for us every, every time I talk with Spanish with someone that uh, is from around, I don't know, a different part of the world, but they can, they tell me, I, or I tell, I, I come from Peru. I speak Spanish, yes. Ah, narcos, I know how narcos, I see narcos, you know. I know this word and this word, and of course they are not the best words possible. Uh, they are like uh, Colombian slang and whatever, yeah, yeah, but I tell them this is Colombian, it's not Peruvian. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, yeah it's uh, somehow, I don't know, this, uh, it's quite prevalent in the media nowadays, and uh, it makes an impact. I don't know in which degree is in the United States, In the United States, Sierra, is there? Do you think there's a domination of this this narco narrative? Um, I think the tropes that she chooses to use in that text, uh, I do think, reflect probably um, a civil, what you are describing, Sydney. Actually, yeah, like an obsession with a particular narrative about a culture that reinforces American identity while simultaneously um, portraying an outside group as negative um, over and over and over again for the purposes of entertainment. So, um, yeah, I think there's a lot of sites where we could see that, but I think the narcos culture is definitely one that you could see in Breaking Bad or nar- like Narcos, the literal show. Yeah. Um, but then again, in oh, this yeah. text, it's not, I don't know if it's so interesting that she chose, like the tropes that she chose to operate with or the fact that those are, mm-hmm ones that are long-standing in a communal memory for an American audience, a particular white American audience. Um, you know, why is that the story that gets told over and over, you know? And then you start to raise the sort of question is, is this playing into sort of that American civil religious narrative? Is it part of that unification of that sort of white Caucasian mass against an other you know, if we're going to draw upon Robert Beller in that sense and these sort of traditional narratives that get pulled up all the time for the sake of sort of uh, fostering a collective consciousness. And I think that's sort of what's underlying the discussion that we've had so far is this idea of what is this narrative actually serving? Who is it serving? It's not actually serving the, the immigrant narrative at all, really. Right. It's, a, it's serving a particular version of it that's definitely catering to the interests of not um, anyone who's been a migrant <laughs> to the United States. Um, and I think just the fact that in the text she references brown skin so frequently in a, in a sort of tokenized sense uh, that tells you immediately about who the audience she was imagining for her book was. Um, they weren't people that mm. wouldn't have been surprised at the color of another person's skin, you know? So, yeah. Well, I would just like to thank you both for joining us here today and for discussing these sort of real pressing sort of intimations of, of religion in the world, right, that's really occurring right now. And I think it's always important for us as scholars to think about the present and how religion is really playing a role. Um, so thank you both um, for joining us. Um, we're going to wrap up now and we'll see you next week for another episode of the Religious Studies Project. Great. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you as well. The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SC04. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson and managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Marek Sullivan and Rebecca Barrett-Fox and our opportunities digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford, sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop and video editing by Jonathan Tuckett. Don't forget you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs and you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals.